ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew S Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today my guests are musicians Joe Carnes and Jeremy Rosunda from Soul Pop Masterminds, Fits, and the Tantrums. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. Your program is about to begin. All right, welcome to the fourth episode of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today my guests are musicians Joe Carnes and Jeremy Rosumna known mostly as key members of Chart Topper's Fits and the Tantrums, but their journeys didn't start there. Joe's first taste of success was with post-jellyfish glam rockers Imperial Drag, whose self-titled LP on Sony subsidiary work records garnered them the opening slot on Alanis Morissette's enormous Jagged Little Pill tour. Joe also spent time playing bass in Velvet Underground kingpin John Cale's band. Jeremy, on the other hand, first found success with alternative soul phenomenon Macy Gray, traveling the world a few times over and swooping up gold discs for co-writing many of the tracks on her hugely successful LPs on How Life Is and The Id, including the ubiquitous hit song, I Try. This interview's extra fun for me as I've known Joe and Jeremy since junior high and high school, respectively. During this episode, we talk about everything from striving to be unique, work ethic, and always treating others with respect, to publishing and admin deals, signing to a major label, and balancing touring with family life. Above all, though, hanging with Joe and Jeremy is always a laugh. So sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with my brothers Jeremy Rizumna and Joe Carnes from Fitz and the Tantrums. All right, here we go. Joe Carnes, Jeremy Rizumna, welcome to The Conduit. Thanks so much for being here, you guys. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big shout out of love to our bro, James King. Wish he could be here, but um, we'll miss him. And uh, we'll see him soon. I mean, he's, he's still alive. He just yeah. <laughs> had tech issues. Thank God. Yeah, exactly. Well, you were like, we miss him. It just sounded a little bit. <laughs> it did sound like I was memorializing him a little bit. But uh, he's yeah. alive and well. Just yeah. some tech issues. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, so um, I usually start the conduit talking to my guests about um, growing up, family life, music in the household, what brothers or sisters or parents were listening to, all that. Talk to me about, uh, you know, what got you interested in music? What got you interested in wanting to do this for a living? Uh, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, this is Jeremy Zimmer here. Sorry. Um, the funny <laughs> thing is why I first started listening to movie soundtracks. I was, <laughs> I was into James Bond nice. soundtracks and like Jaws and like movie soundtracks and things like that. And yeah. so I thought I wanted to be a film composer um, up until like, uh, Purple Rain came out. And then I realized I wanted to be a Dr. Fink from Prince and the Revolution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was it. And it's weird because also I got into piano to sort of be able to be alone, you know, but yeah. then ironically, my job is to not be alone. Now. Right. <laughs> so soundtracks. And then of course we know your fascination with Prince. Yes, Dr. I'm a huge Prince fanatic. Yeah, man. 
What about you, Joe? I know your dad obviously played and was a bass player and played in bands and all kinds of great stuff. That's right. Yeah, and my grandfather was a professional piano player, so I had some musical history out there. But um, I guess for me at all, you know, I would just, I grew up with my, I have an older sister who is like almost nine years older than me. And so she had her own record collection and my parents had their record collection. And, you know, growing up in the 70s, that meant that, it was like Fleetwood Mac, and, and also growing up in California, it's like Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles were just pervasive. Right. But then my sister had <clears throat> Kiss Destroyer, and what an album oh, yeah. to discover as a six, seven-year-old kid, just to look at the cover. <laughs> totally. And then it's actually their best produced record, because I think it's Bob Ezrin produced that one. Uh, hmm. And right. so it actually sounds great for the, for the genre. And totally. yeah, that's... You know, it all started with, you know, me and my friends, you know, wanting to pretend to be Kiss and having our little like lip sync things. But I would always be the bass player because my dad played bass. So it's like, all right, your dad's going to teach you bass and that's good. That's going to be the band. And it, you know, probably took about four or five years before I actually had one lesson from him. And he was, and he was like, I'm not a bass teacher. And then I got some lessons and it all just kind of went from there. But that was the early inspiration. Oh, I was the kid who was secretly afraid of Kiss. I didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really, if I'd heard the music more, I probably would have been like, oh, cool. But all I saw was like the lunchbox and it just used to be like. It was some nervous. comic book, uh, you know, uh, horror movie kind of uh, rock and roll. That's for sure. That's right. <laughs> well, I so. I have known Joe earlier. <laughs> yeah, Kiss was Kiss was influential on so many people. Man, Paul Grunman yeah. and I used to dress up. His mom used to do makeup for us. So we do, we dress course. up as Kiss all the time growing up. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't look quite like them, I don't think, but we had fun. I'm sure it was close so, enough. It was close enough. Um, yeah. So getting into junior high and stuff, you guys were starting to play in bands and all that, and. Uh, what were kind of like some of the first bands that you played in and what did you learn from playing in, in these beginning bands, what you, you know, what you wanted to do, what you didn't want to do. Yeah. I don't, I'll Joe, take that from the beginning. One. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I, I think I played in like two or three different bands that never played any shows, you know, but they all had yeah. names. Right. There was window right. pane you know, with Alex right. Curtis, I think. And, uh, right, right. Um, and then there was uh, the punk band Subjugator, where we just played Sweet Leaf by Black Sabbath and won uh, one original song. <laughs> nice. And uh, actually, nice. it, you know, it wasn't really until uh, we had Itchy Fingers, Dan, you and me at our, our high school right. band, where we were, that's where things got a little more serious because, you know, you were writing some cool things and then we we're also throwing in some with well, that chili peppers version of fire and <laughs> you know and right, things like that right. um <laughs> definitely you know like the best band name ever right dude it was dude you're you made a whole beautiful font for everything i still remember it right yeah it was yeah. rad it was rad um we played, played the one show talent show yeah yeah and did not cause the riot but that was that's you know leave that for someone else <laughs> Um, I mean, we should right. make it clear that we've all known each other for, you know, oh, yeah. since. <laughs> yeah, we go back uh, all the way uh, from me and Dan to junior high and me and Jeremy to high school. Yeah. 
Same. So yeah, yeah you I mean, guys were actually as, more yeah. friends with my my younger brother, who was a who was in the grade below me. Yeah, yeah. I still think you guys is like the his kids like. <laughs> yeah. Yes, because I guess yeah, I was one grade ahead of you in like in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how that still exists. Like you know, Gene and Miles and Daryl Goldfarb and stuff. They're like only two years older, but I still look up. I mean, to this day, they're legends. Like like the Incline was the band. I know we're all three of us influenced by the Incline. Sure. Um, Sure. This might be too inside. I'm just going to mention it real quick. It's a little bit off uh, your question, but the Miles Tackett, you know, doom kick kick kick. My daughter, Rafi, who's six, uh, because I'm always doing that sound because Miles Tackett did that sound. Now Rafi yeah. does the same snare drum <laughs> That's nice. her beatbox. Like, yeah, check it out. Boom. Kit, kit, kit. Um, but yeah, if uh, I don't think I was in bands in junior high. I think I really started being in, in bands like starting in high school. But that was yeah. more like we, I remember we did a talent show. We beat Elliot Hochberg out. Uh, no, no, we, we were tied with Elliot Hochberg for third place at the school talent show. Oh, um, but yeah, the inclined, uh, was, was a huge influence, uh, in terms of, they were like, you know, Miles Tackett was like voted music, you know, best musician. And I remember I met him one time at a makeup test in health class and he was oh, banging yeah. on the table and I was like, Oh my God, are you Miles Tackett? Um, but yeah, uh, band band started for me like more after high school. In fact, obviously one of my early most like band bands was with Dan Ubik. Yeah, right. Sitting right in front of us, um, uh, called and it was called Custom, and it was me, you, and Gene, and Steve Smart. Yes, sir. And uh, that was one of my main interests. And then just yeah, in the earlier years, it was just it was just jamming with a bunch of people. Yeah. More than more than bands per se, initially. Custom was so much fun. It was like I had been in this little fusion kind of band, which you guys both know about, but. Uh, been playing kind of like in a band that was not really my thing but uh when i started playing in custom it was more like oh man this is so much fun like i get yeah. to play with steve and jeremy and gene and it was like solid rhythm section this is super fun and great original tunes about how to play an organ that's right. when i first got that little uh you know that little it was like a digital organ but it was cool and um i remember when we were playing at fado doe and that was when i first learned the power of like an organ that you could just just one note, you know, it didn't have to be like a yeah. crazy, crazy thing all the time. Uh, just the volume pedal and just swelling one note. I remember we were doing a, a meters cover and it was like broken down and it was my turn for a solo. And I, I was just trying to work it out. I'm like, how do you solo on an organ? And I just remember yeah. doing this and people were like, ah, and like, yeah, it was like, oh shit. Okay. You had such a natural touch on the organ. That's crazy. That's true. Yeah, so uh, gigs like that were just like uh, such a big learning experience. I mean, just playing in front of people for the first time is, is you know, such a trip. And um, man, I mean, those that band didn't, you know, obviously went as far as playing a lot of local gigs and all that. But uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of getting into the your first bands that were um, kind of starting to do do stuff, getting record deals. And I know Joe, for you, that was Imperial Drag, as far as I know, and then Jer with Macy Gray. So talk to me yeah. about kind of getting into these situations that went a little wider and started picking up some traction. Yeah, I'll go Joe. first there. Yeah, so I, um, you know, yeah, because I was just playing around and had bands and, you know, definitely by the college years, where it's definitely, you know, 
had a band, kind of thrash funk thing, and then started playing with some other people and, you know, actually just started doing some sessions, you know, the recording sessions for people. And, uh, yeah. you know, <clears throat> somehow got recommended for this band that was, that was going to have a record deal that didn't, uh, had never played any shows because uh, two of the members were in a band called Jellyfish. And right. so that, you know, I got into that band and it took a while for us to get the deal and get the stuff. But, you know, it was my first experience, you know, as a band member in a, in a big label and, um, you know, learned a lot. I mean, it was really, I learned a lot musically. Those guys were all like five years older than me. I learned how to sing harmony, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, just learned so much musically because I had a lot of freedom in there. But then also just learned about, you know, what it's like to be on a label and be in a band and then have your schedule just, you know, you are just at the will of the machine, you know, and it doesn't necessarily right. have to be like this evil machine. It's just the machine of a band, you know, it's like right, when things right. are moving, you know, you it's, you know, you just kind of got to roll with it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was my first time like playing clubs, touring in a van. Uh, and I was like, oh, we could do this forever. And the guys that I was in the band with were like, uh, yeah, we'd really rather not do this forever. We'd already been in, they'd been in buses and stuff. And I was like, this is yeah. great. Um, so it was really fun in that aspect. And just, you know, also we opened up for Alanis Morissette on her Jagged Little Pill tour and having to go out there right. and play arenas when I'd only played little clubs took, you know, took a whole... <clears throat> in rewiring of my mind, you know, like, how do you, sure. what do you do? Yeah. I have all this stage now and like, oh, but maybe I could just stay here. You know? It's like, didn't even know, like, what do I do with my hands? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. right, right. Um, totally. but you, you know, you figure it out pretty quick because it's trial by fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Crash course in brain surgery. Yeah. Man. Yeah, so talk about like what it was like, you know, as far as when you first signed the deal. I don't know the inner workings of, of Imperial Drag, but obviously Eric and and Roger seem like the main two songwriters. Is that is that fair to say, or did you guys all oh, kind of write together? No, yeah. no, we we all contributed to the arrangements, but they were the songwriters. Um, so everyone everyone had, you know, musical influence, but not writing influence. Right, 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 right. And how did that go as far as you know? I'm just trying to kind of help people along that are in these situations. What did it look like for you signing this deal as far as, um, you know, your input in the band, what, you, you know, how the, how the business kind of worked out? Now, I don't want to get too personal, but how did it, uh, you know, how, how did that all sort itself out? Um, well, basically, because they were the only two that I realized that got signed to the label. So they were on the hook ah, yeah. for, for all of the, the money. And then gotcha. me and the drummer, Eric Scotus, signed a band agreement with those guys. Um, right. So we were signed to our band members. And then, right. you know, had the option to, I could either become a salaried player and make more money, or I could, in, in the short term, or I could be a vested member and get right. a very small stipend to barely survive. Uh, and mm -hmm. in the hopes that when we made money, I would get you know, a share of that. And so I chose that option and uh, made yeah. very little money, just, you know, enough to uh, be able to move back into my folks' house while I was on tour. <laughs> right. It's always the gamble. Right. It's always the gamble. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I took that gamble. It, yeah, it didn't necessarily 
pay off uh, financially, but I would, you know, it's if you believe in what you're doing, you uh, you know, you got to take the chance. Absolutely. Circumstances willing, and I had supportive parents, luckily, who you know, and had a garage, a spare garage that was already converted for my sister for a little bit, so I had a little bit oh, of yeah. autonomy there. But yeah, that's it. That's what it took to uh, to be yeah. in that band. Also, I was Absolutely. just not home anyway, so I was like, great, you know, place to put my stuff. Right. And you got all this experience playing bigger places, playing with amazing songwriters and a great drummer and a great band. Oh, absolutely. That no, band it's, was incredible. It, I saw you guys a few times. Yeah, it's an incredibly formative experience for me. I learned so much and I had so much freedom uh, to play whatever I wanted to do. And at the time I was a very busy player and, uh, and I liked that. I liked being hyper melodic, you know, and so I could you know, I had that free reign. So it was very, a very good situation for me at the, at the time. Sure, sure. Right. Man, amazing. Well, Jared, talk to us about when you first started getting uh, your position playing with Macy Gray, playing keys with Macy Gray, and how that, how that deal looked, how you were brought in, kind of what the yeah. situation was with the record deal and all that. That's interesting to all our listeners, just kind of how that yeah. works. Well, the Macy thing was, uh, let's see, like I first met her in, I think it was 95, 96. Damn, that's a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, I remember she had this cattle call audition for players. She was about to do an album on, uh, I think it was Electra, as a matter of was it Electra? It was, it was Atlantic, for sure. Um, and uh, But it was funny, because at the cattle call, Rami Jaffe, the, who's now in the Foo Fighters, was there. Yeah. And he's sort of a friend of mine, and he was super cool. He had his cut down B3 set up, and I auditioned, but it seemed like he already had the gig. Strange, but it was all friendly and cool. Long story short, he made an album with her. Uh, it was her first album that actually never came out. And then, but I got hired on to to tour that album before anyone knew that it was not going to come out. Um, so I got in initially just as like a side keyboard player. And it was funny because we went to do a uh, showcase for the label in New York, but I found out later that before the plane even landed, uh, she'd already been dropped. But we oh, still did the, the shows, and it was still fun, and it was it was really fantastic. Um, and then she got dropped, and I was with her for, I think it was like another couple of years. I still had a day job. I was working in a mailroom at New Line Cinema uh, right. by day and then by night, uh, usually very late at night, working with Macy. <laughs> and, uh, and then she moved back to Ohio for a while. We, I think we all had a big fight and she sort of quit the music business for like a couple of years. And I went on my first tour with uh, this band called the Devlins, uh, my first like tour tour uh, where I was able to really quit my day job and everything like that. Um, and when I came, the, that tour got cut short. Thank God it all, it all, everything happens in a crazy sequence. It's like the tour got cut short cause they ran out of funding. So I came home, but I'd already sublet my apartment. So I was living on my buddy, Chris Joyner's parents couch. And <laughs> when that happened, I got a call from Macy saying, Hey, can you come to the studio? And at the time it was like, I mean, Dan, you know, that, <laughs> you know how it is. It's like, ah, it's four in the morning right now. That's um, when she called me for the one thing I did. <laughs> like, with hey, her. Can you come to the studio? What are you doing right now? You're like, I'm, I'm sleeping. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And uh, anyway, long story short, uh, I went back to start and we were just started writing stuff. And I always, uh, remembered writing with Macy that if she was trying to do this, I, I don't know how much detail you want to get into on this podcast. Let's as just say want, we started, yeah, we started writing. I always wanted her to have, I had an idea of 
what I wanted the music to sound like, which wasn't what the first album sounded like. That was more like rock. Yeah. And um, we started writing together, and there was one night I got called in. It was last second. I had other plans, and she was like, hey, could you come out to some guy's garage, you know, studio? <laughs> and then it was the middle of the night, and I almost didn't go. Yeah. Thank God I went, because that was the night that I Try was written. Oh, wow, um, yeah. Which, be, which, by the way, uh, first of all, we wrote the song. I mean, I was more the music guy, and I didn't even know what her what she was going to sing yet. None of us did. And mm -hmm. uh, then when it came to she started singing her vocals, like, after the music had been recorded. I remember mm -hmm. the drummer didn't show up, so she played drums, and she kept telling us we were all offbeat. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. And we are like, ah, are you sure about that? But anyway, so the, but the minute she sang the first two lines of the song, we all looked at each other like, holy shit, yeah. this is a good song. Um, but that... That's still for like another two year or two. Nobody, I mean, she we shopped. Uh, she was shopping. She was the artist. I was still the, just a side guy. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, people still. It took a couple of years of people hearing that song and the other music and rejecting it, and saying I don't hear it, yeah. uh, before uh, she finally uh, got her deal with Sony. And um, and then that's when it all started. We all, you know, we, we went on tour. And the, the great thing was I wasn't signed on the deal. She, it was just a Macy Gray artist deal. But yeah. I was, you know, writing all the the music or co-writing all the music. Right. Um, sometimes me and her, sometimes a bunch of people and me and her or whatever. And yeah. uh, I got really lucky because that first album came out and did really well. Yeah. And uh, that was sort of the start of everything. Right. Yeah, for me. right. Yeah, so how does that, that's a... Uh... You're obviously you're not on the deal, but you're writing a lot of the songs or co-writing a lot of the songs, and uh, that's a that's a good place to be in. Well, this was in the '90s when people when people still were buying records and right. radio was still. I mean, radio is still a thing now, but it was really still a thing back then. So yeah, it was. Uh, some people used to say to like you know they'd be like, "Oh man, you got that last paycheck," you know what I mean? Because that was you know it was pre Napster, pre everything else. So it was a sweet spot to to have publishing on an album like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dang. Yeah. Well, um, I know you, Joe, you did a bunch of session stuff after Imperial Drag kind of, um, you know, stopped playing. Um, talk to me about a bit of the stuff you did before Fits in the Tantrums happened. I'm just interested in kind of what your life looked like at that point in terms of doing session work and gigs. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was an interesting uh, transition, you know, like being on a major label band and touring around and then it just naturally ran its course you know we made one record yeah. we were trying to make another one and it you know just the internal band issues just kind of made it implode and stop uh yeah. before we put something out and then it was like yeah i had to go back and get a job and that was a right. that was a harsh reality for a bit but i also uh you know i, I even I, at one point i think after uh after about a year after that, I was probably like 27, and I was like, oh, my failing career, you know, and was so bummed out. Yeah. And um, I actually started teaching preschool because for some random, I just met some lady, and, and there was something in me that was like, I need to get outside myself. I can't, you know, stay yeah. in this weird, you know, woe is me, I'm 27, you know, tw you're only 27, you got plenty of time yeah. to try to figure something out. So I did that, right. that kind of got me out of my head. And the whole time playing in bands, you know, I always wanted to be in a band, you know, so yeah. I was trying to do that. But then at the same time started 
playing with other bands and that really helped me grow it. You know, I got, I was just playing with whoever would have me and playing great music and learning so much and meeting so many people. And it was a really great scene um, in LA around that time, which is like the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, yeah. You know, and, but it took me a while to get back out on the road. You know, one of the early things I think one of my first things back on the road actually was was with you, Dan, when we when I joined Blood of Abraham. Right, um, right, right. You know, you and so Scott, that, you know, like, you know, because I know we were all in the same circle, running around playing playing gigs and stuff, and you invited me into that project, which was really great because also I'd never done anything hip hop based, and it really taught me a lot right. about uh, a different style of bass playing than. I was doing at the time. Right. I was doing a lot of singer-songwriter stuff and some rock stuff, and so to get yeah. into hip-hop and, you know, having that, you know, a lot of it is a less-is-more approach, you know. It's like make really impactful things and also grabbing stuff, you know, like, you know, Serge Gainsbourg type of samples right. and things like that, and you know, which are, you know, tonally and musically just so inspiring. You know, right. did that and then was doing all these kind of things and eventually I uh, got led that all led to me getting to play with john cale from the uh velvet underground fame right and also solo works and that was uh that was really really great did played with him for five years recorded with him and was still doing other things had my own bands that were uh, i had a band called pedestrian that i was really really loved right. and was Remember you know too. yeah trying to get that off the ground but you know even with all of our connections we were all like great uh everyone was big session people doing recordings and tours with you know big artists we all and thought we all had the connections that you know connections uh only go so far if people can't hear what you're doing you know and right. uh right so and you know no matter if you're the you know we were like kind of that band pedestrian we were kind of like darlings of the of the music circle over at like the hotel cafe scene and things like that so all right. the musicians would come and see our band because it was really great but um you know it just never translated enough we just didn't you know we didn't have anybody to represent us to go out there and, and fight gotcha. for us i think that was a big thing mm -hmm. and then uh yeah and then around that you know then i was just uh that band dissolved and uh my time yeah. with kale was coming to an end and I started getting some other gigs, was playing with a band called Five for Fighting and, you know, making some better money touring and things like that. And I was kind of like, oh, I think I just want to do this, you know, just kind of be a, you know, I didn't want to be in a band and have uh, have to be responsible for other people so right. much. Right. And then right. Uh, got the opportunity to play in Fits in the Tantrums and kind of cover for some gigs at first for our friend Ethan Phillips. And then he left. Yeah. And then I came in and yeah. and join that and I, w I was at that point where I was like ah, I don't want to be in a band but there's something about this that is too uh compelling to turn down you know yeah. can, right I'll stop there for now that's an interesting that. thing you bring up yeah. just the, the the difference between being a hired you know musician a hired gun as they say or being in a band and sometimes our psyches can take being in a band depending on the personalities involved and sometimes it's the last thing we want to do, you know? It's just, uh, it's such, every situation is so different, you know? Yeah, yeah well, there are the pros and cons. Yeah, and being in a band is like being married to everybody, all these different people, you know? And, uh, 
Yeah. And it's, you know, anyone who's married knows that, you know, and has been married for any period of time knows that it is wonderful, but it takes work. And, uh, you know, right. then multiply yeah. that times, uh, you know, however many people are in the band. Six people. Yeah. Yeah, Six it's people. something to, yeah. uh, you know, it's definitely, it's definitely got its challenges and its rewards. That's an interesting thing as well. Just uh, the, the personalities and then also juggling, you know, families and uh, being on the road as well. But we'll talk about that too. I want to get into Jeremy and uh, kind of where your road took you um, after Macy and before Fits in the Tantrums kind of started coming together. What other kind of stuff were you doing around those years, Jer? Uh, it was a trip. I guess my the, like the major run of Macy kind of ended around 2001, 2002. Yeah. Um, and initially, I was in a weird headspace, to be honest with you, because uh, it's funny. Like, I play keyboards. I, this is an interesting thing just uh, to get into because, like, I, you know, everyone does what they do musically, you know? And, like, yeah. there's a period, at least for me when I was younger, where I felt like, if you're not good at everything, then you suck and all this stuff. And but at the end of the day, like as I'm getting older, you realize you, there's you do what you do. You love the music you love. You have the style that you have. Um, but back then, I didn't. You know, I was a lot younger. And after the Macy thing ended, um, it was a weird situation because uh, I didn't have to work for a while. I just bought a house, and I was everything was cool on that front. But all of a sudden, I was terrified to to work with anybody because everywhere mm -hmm. I went uh, for a while, it's like, that's Jeremy. He's the he's dope keyboard player from Macy Gray. And, yeah. but people were saying that who ha didn't even, who hadn't heard me play. So like yeah. they, I, I, for a while I felt like I had this reputation as like this amazing keyboard player, but in reality, nothing had really changed. I do what I do. Like I can't read music. There's a lot of stuff, you know, I'm not like a jazz ripper. I can't, you know, I just do yeah. the thing I do. So like I went through right. this period where I was just really, in my head and I was really terrified to do anything. I like, I was, mm. you know, I would flake on sessions and stuff like that. Just, it was, it was, a, it was a weird few years of, of that. I know it's kind of deep, but it might be worth mentioning no. just because I, Absolutely. You know, we're all musicians and everyone's in their head and it's, it's a whole crazy thing. Um, but, uh, so, but during that time I did, I still was working with a lot of singer songwriters. I was still producing music. I still got some cuts on people's albums and stuff like that. And I was, I was basically trying to move into production. And wasn't going to tour anymore. And um, mm. uh, let's see. Although, you know, but there were two of you and I did some stuff, right? Didn't I go yep. out with you a few times on stuff? Yep. And there was the Breakestra. I did a run yep. with the Breakestra, like we all did, um, which yep. is awesome. It's, hey, yes, man, it's sir. school. It was great. And um, absolutely. The Fitz thing, what year was that? 08, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, there were like several years of bouncing around where I was kind of I didn't have a goal in mind. I was just working with people occasionally going on a little mini tour, but not really doing that much and not sure what I wanted to do. Um, and I remember I was on two. I was on a mini van tour with uh, this singer songwriter named Skylar Fisk, who's dope. And she and I mm -hmm. were working together and writing songs and stuff. Um, but it was definitely like a little acoustic thing. And uh, I got a phone call from from our, you know, Stuart Cole about yeah. uh, being in the house band at this club Bardot, which was kind of happening at the time. And yeah. for some reason, I remember getting that call and thinking, I don't know why, but I feel like this is a really important call. And right. uh, sure enough, you know, I ended up doing the house band thing there. It was really fun. We had a great time. Prince sat in with us, which oh, was wow. crazy. Um, right. 
but then that's where I met John Wicks, who hmm. uh, somewhere in there said, hey, I'm working with this guy, Fitz, um, and uh, he's putting together a band, and do you want to ch- check it out? And I said, yeah. Um, but the thing was, I wasn't planning on ever going on tour again. I was actually planning on getting into scoring, and Fitz at the time had a commercial music company. So right. I thought, all right, I'll do a couple gigs with this Fitz guy. I actually, the music, I will say that when I heard the music, it was actually really dope. There were like two two songs or three songs that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were actually pretty haunting and cool. And I remember thinking like, who is this dude? It was it was kind of mysterious and cool. And um, I was like, I'll do a couple gigs just so I can get in. So maybe I can get in on the commercial music thing. But right. what I didn't know at the time was he was actually ending his, that business because he wanted to really start a band and make a true go for it doing that. Right. And uh, so anyway, it was funny because it definitely – it's the, you know, the, the old story we got together for, it's true. We got like one rehearsal and then we started playing uh, the hotel cafe and some other places. But I will say that from the first show, uh, the response from the audience was really different than I had seen in a long time. Um, in fact, the last time I had felt a response like that, where you, it made me think twice was when I first played with Macy. So I remember like my ears pricked up and I was like, all right, what, this is something different. And, uh, you know, it became like, all right, can you do two weeks in a van? I was like, all right, I'll do two weeks in a van, fine. <laughs> yeah. And then it was like, hey, can you guys do a month, blah, blah, blah. And so next thing I knew, I was you know, just in the, we were a band. I was in the band. Joe was there fairly early on. Um, we did yeah. have another guy at first, um, a good friend of ours, Ethan, but he, he yeah. took another gig and Joe came in and, you know, that's, he's been the guy forever. And um, yeah. Two amazing bass players, by the way, both of you that? guys. I said I've played with Ethan a bunch and I've played with Joe a bunch and yeah. Fitz in the Tantrums has never had a bad bass player in the band, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, that is 100% true. And yeah. like, yeah, so then it, once the Fitz thing started, it started really getting busy and I pretty much, that was it. We were just on a roller coaster ride and went from van tours to we finally got a sprinter van. It was like super exciting because we could like put our heads back. And not right. like, you know, how it is in a band with, I don't know why they don't make ever, they don't make headrests in bands. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> right. and, uh, so that was amazing to have a headrest and then, you know, just <laughs> went on and on and became the fits and the tantrums thing. The things we look forward to, if there was only a headrest in my van, then if I, I just had a headrest. It's true. <laughs> so I can so. get some rest on these, on these long road trips. Oh man. Yeah. yeah um, I love what you were talking about earlier, just about how how uh, after Macy, you know, you were just kind of feeling like people were coming at at you with like Jeremy's, you know, he's this amazing keyboard player, which you are. But, you know, the reality of like, you know, I just kind of do what I do. And I think not enough people talk about that. Like, you know, everybody just has their specialties. And as much as you want to be well-rounded and kind of think you can play all different kinds of styles we all have our taste and we feel good when we're playing in our zones you know yeah and i think everybody the one thing a lot of people don't talk about is just the sensitivity of musicians you know it's just naturally inherent in man 90 percent of the musicians i know you know we're into it because we're sensitive to emotion and feelings and everybody sometimes feels like i'm not good enough and you know uh uh, I'm not as good as that guy, and ta- I, I wish you, you know, you guys would speak on that just a little bit about how um, just finding your strengths and um, and just kind of 
trusting yourself and that people are going to love you for the things that you do, you know, and not expecting to be good at every single style, you know? I mean, I think it's, it's, I realize in retrospect how important that is because it, I mean, I think when you're a younger musician, I mean, it's important to shed, get your chops up, you know, yeah, do as much as you can. I mean, it's, you never want to stop learning or anything like that, but right. yeah, I think looking back on it now, it's to me, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's more important to have uh, your style than it is to be able right. to play every style. Um, right. And I think that's what's going to, you know, it, it's what makes a, a singer. It's the difference between g- being generic and being somebody that people remember, you know? Yeah. And not everybody is going to love everything, you know? I mean, like the, the Macy thing, half, half the people would be like, oh man, she sounds like a horse frog. And the other people, you know, you, she, you but, and then the, everyone else is like, it's an iconic voice. But yeah. love it or hate it, you know that voice when you hear it. Whereas a lot of Absolutely. the stuff you hear, especially these days with all the processing that's happening with vocals and stuff like that, you can't really – I can't tell half the people's voices apart. Yeah. Everyone's sounding the same. And it's – right. I understand that that's where things temporarily hopefully seem to be going. But um, having something that stands out I think is really important. That's so true. And you know, from Macy to Neil Young to – Bob Dylan to, I mean, there's a million examples, all singers who aren't technically like Ella Fitzgerald or something, you know, but you stand, you know, they stand out. It's got a vibe to it and the music supports that vibe. And that's so important, you know, just have something that stands out. Yeah. Yeah, And it's funny because um, I've got this side band right now called Left Field Messiah. Yeah. Um, And uh, it's, uh, it's me and my buddy Eric from this band Wilding, this guy Steve Bass from that band Hot Hot Heat from a little while back. And right. it's funny because I met them, uh, this is only a couple years ago that we, we started, and I was actually at a point uh, where I was starting to feel like I wondered if maybe I had said everything I was going to say musically, and you know, I wasn't really sure if maybe I was just going to kind of go off into the night, you know what I mean? And um, yeah. But then it was funny because that was that was one of the first things in a while where I really we, we got together in a studio and I just was really given free reign. Like every, the vibe was completely open and it was just like, do what you do. And everything I did naturally, things that I normally throw out. Cause I'm like, I second guess it. It's like, ah, that's not this, or it's not commercial enough, or it doesn't sound this enough. But yeah. a bunch of ideas like that, they were like, no, that's the thing. Keep going with that. And right. it kind of gave me new fuel to, to keep going. And, and that, that project actually brought out something in me. I just hadn't done something that was just purely me in a while, you know, especially because right. when you're in a band, there's it's six people, there's different tastes and all the stuff that come together. But this was a little bit different where it was uh, it was a little bit more pure and it was it was a reminder. Um, but but the thing I'm getting at is that I just decided, OK, we're not going to make we, we decided we're not going to make music for any reason other than we think it's cool. We're not going right. to try to get it's not for the radio. It's not for. It's for us. It's like if we went to a party and this song came on, we'd be happy. That's right, the goal right. of that band. And it was. it's just really refreshed a lot of stuff and reminded me of exactly what we're talking about, which is just try just your style and doing yeah. what you like. And that's the thing. And I'm, it's more, you know, I'm really, really happy with the way that stuff is coming out. Yeah, man. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, feeling comfortable and feeling like you can trust the people you're around and feel good about, you know, the thing you do is is so important, you know. You have to feel like you're in a safe space. If you that's one of the things about walking into a session cold that everybody gets that feeling even though everyone's being cool. 
when you don't know everybody, you don't know how people are going to react. You don't know if they're going to yeah. be dicks or if, like, it's cool. But, yeah, uh, I think most musicians, I think probably anyone will tell you, if you feel comfortable and you feel comfortable with the people around you, you play better. I mean, it's right. just a fact. Yeah, that's right, true. Right, absolutely. Finding the right people to surround yourself with is as much, you know, I think a key to success as having all the chops yourself or whatever, you know, is surrounding right. yourself with people who are like-minded and who have a shared goal in mind, you know? Yeah. Well, let's get into, uh, you were talking about how you first met John, the drummer from Fits in the Tantrums, Jer, and, uh, yeah. you know, I read on kind of the story of your guys forming. I guess uh, Michael went to CalArts with James. Is that how they yeah. met first? Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And then you, uh, John brought in you too, Joe. Is that right? No, no, that was, you knew John Wicks. Ethan. Oh, okay. No, like, uh, Wikipedia six, is incorrect. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, the stories and myths become a thing, but <laughs> this, yeah, the actual story is, uh, um, Ethan Phillips, the original bass player, he had, you know, we were friends and he called me to cover for a gig like six months into the life of the band just over at the, God, what was, what was that club? Uh, three clubs. Mm -hmm. Three of Clubs, exactly, in Hollywood. So, yeah. Where and was the I, Three of Clubs? What's that? Where's the Three of Clubs? I don't know that spot. It was like South. You know where Nadine's just like, music is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nadine's it's right music, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, a little south right. of, uh, of, of the other music venues and stuff. Yeah, just it was a you know, small yeah. room, but, you know, fun room. And half of it's a bar, half of it's a little space. So, yeah, it was like he called me to cover that. You know, we were all just gigging and subbing for each other and stuff. So yeah, that was it. And then sure. uh, about six months later, then he actually got injured in a bizarre oh. whaling, whale right. watching accident, not whaling accident, but yeah, he right. hurt his back, unfortunately. <laughs> and then, so there was yeah. like a month of gigs that I had to, that he needed covering, cover just locally. It was like eight or, you know, a lot of gigs, like six gigs in a month. Um, yeah. And they had just highly played. got hurt too, right? Then they get they yeah, got like yeah. thrown no, off it was a like boat a, or something. A, a, like a, I think a whale breached and underneath the boat yeah. and threw everybody up. Dang. Yeah, it was right. not a, not a good I scene. Forgot for, about that. Yeah, for like six yeah. weeks or something, maybe more. But uh, yeah. yeah, so then I came in. I think uh, you know Fitz had called me, and, uh, so I came in and helped out for that. And uh, yeah, and then it was just. That, that's kind of how it came to be. I'd known, I only knew uh, James and Jeremy before and uh, yeah. everyone else. I just like, I met John on the gig at three of clubs and Noel, you know, or at the rehearsals beforehand. Yeah. And yeah. And I, so it, it kind of went on like that. And then, you know, Ethan just kept being busy cause he was in demand and playing with a lot of yeah. people that he was really digging. And he had his own band that he had been in for five years. I forgot what it was called. What was that? Yeah. Um, Orgone, he was Orgone. It was Orgone, and you know they, they're a heavy, yeah. heavy touring entity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so he kept not being able to do gigs, and even I couldn't cover some of the gigs at a certain point. And then, uh, yeah. And then it was just before everything was about to start when uh, you know, we had a whole summer of of gigs, you know, uh, leading up to an album release. And uh, you know, Ethan was busy doing some stuff, and so then I came in. Right. And so the that. first EP you guys did, Ethan was on, but then you were doing the shows for it. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that and the first. Is that right? 
record. Yeah. Well, it's, and also I think there are other people because some of the things were uh, some of the songs were demos before the band was even formed. So like I think some songs oh, okay. even had a. Uh, um, Sebastian Steinberg originally just right. on on bass recording and you know gotcha. different iterations I can't speak to all that stuff because I wasn't really there for that that's more Jer's territory because he was around more during that time yeah I kind of came in to support the first full record when the band got oh, okay. signed to Dangerbird Records right. so that's kind of where I gotcha. came in to tour that record and then my involvement increased later on I see I see so um, it was just kind of like you got in a room for the first time, the six of you, and you could just feel it, right? It was just like a, a good chemistry. It was good chemistry. And also, yeah, everybody was, you know, pro. Like, every, you know, everyone had done so many gigs. Sure. You know, we all were pretty adept at picking stuff up pretty quick and just doing it. So, yeah, uh, there was not a lot of rehearsal involved at all. So how, when you first came in, Joe, how many songs were there that you got that um, had been written already? Was there a whole um, set of stuff? Were you guys doing covers or all originals at the beginning? No, we had to throw in some covers to, to fill out a, a full set. Um, you yeah. know, we did like Scott Walker cover in the early days, and they had already done like an oh. Elvis Costello thing. But yeah, it was a lot, mainly yeah. um, there was an album's worth of stuff. Well, I guess the first gig I did was, you know, things were still being written. So back then, yeah, there were probably a couple more covers. But by yeah. 2010, when I when I actually started doing more gigs, there was, um, there, there, we had to fill out our set with covers for a good, for that whole album cycle. Um, gotcha. You know, and, but yeah, there was a, there was a lot of stuff to learn. And, uh, you know, I, first couple gigs, I had my notes and things like that, but I was definitely really <laughs> yep. excited to play this style of music. Cause you know, like I said, I'd sure. been really kind of focusing on like supporting singer songwriters and doing my rock band and things like that. And I really wanted to play something that had more R and B and soul and groove to it. And so yeah. it was, a uh, it was something that I always was passionate about, but, uh, never found myself in those bands for some reason, you know, that just, right. Well, you're so unique in that, you know, you have the Paul McCartney and like Phil Lesh and the melodic thing so beautifully, but then you're also a huge James Jamerson and, and George Porter fan. So it's like Absolutely. it made perfect sense for you to step into that. And it was like, you got to play that kind of stuff finally. Yeah, well, and also in the, the nature of the band, the way it was set up, you know, it was basically Jeremy on keyboards, which is basically piano and organ. And that was it in the early days. And James yeah. on one saxophone yeah. and- right. John on drums and me on bass and no guitar and two vocalists and Noel right. on tambourine. And so definitely as a bass player, yeah. there's a lot of room to, to fill out the space, um, which yeah, yeah, it was a trippy I setup. Did, and then learned, yeah. And then learned how to, you know, pair it again. I, you know, sometimes felt like lead bass at times. And then I have learned how to pair it down a little bit more. <laughs> to, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, you hear about groups that have, you know, Singing is the main focus, and then the band consists only of those few things, you know, whether it be Cream or, you know, Zeppelin or something where it's like, or The Who even, you know, where it's like, there's so much space, you have to fill it in somehow, but you manage to find a perfect combination of not playing too much, but filling in the space as well. Well, and yeah, you talk about style too, like, uh, I mean, that was the, you know, for the first several years that that was the interesting setup about Fits and the Tantrums was no guitar. That was a it was a big talking point in interviews, but it was because it was funny. Like, yeah, for you, Joe, as a bass player, and for me as a keyboard player, 
uh, that was a lot of responsibility. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it was yeah, cool. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's it it forced us to find different ways of yeah filling up the space. You know, for me, there was a lot of like uh, distortion and reverb on the organ. It was fun, man. It was it was a whole yeah. different thing. And that was really the basis of the sound for the first couple things. You know, for for totally. several years. Yeah, talk about that. That's interesting. Like, yeah, the guitar does fill stuff out, and without it, it's a whole nother thing to compensate for. Yeah, well, especially right. when like James had all these horn arrangements on the records, and some, you mm -hmm. know, and so they were more filled out on, you know, and to try to figure out what to do for that to make up for that, and then reinterpret things, and and then also to create those live moments that you know, became the signature of the band, you know, you right. gotta let things breathe a little bit. Now, how do you guys go about, has your, has your approach to recording changed at all in, you know, finding that out for us? Like James does these big horn arrangements for some of the earlier stuff and then trying to recreate it live as a challenge. Cause you've got to kind of, obviously you've only got one horn player and uh, has that changed the way you approach recording? Like, are you trying to record with a live situation in mind? How are you guys going about that? No, I'd say it's the opposite. I'd say that, okay. uh, no, we're not at a point right now where we're trying to like uh, do arrangements that are easily duplicated live. We just, yeah. we have other little tricks up our sleeve for that. Got yeah. you. Yeah, I think that oh, that's cool. comes more into play in the writing of the songs, thinking about big moments and, you know, sing-along stuff and crowd interaction the things that have become hallmarks of the band but um i think in terms of recording for the last three records it really you know especially that second record where we really were um progressing in the sound adding more synthesizers things like that you know it yeah. was kind of like let's make the record happen and then figure out how to play it live, out the or, live. yeah yeah because yeah. we got a lot of shit for that too because we Sorry to interrupt. We, but yeah, I mean, we got we got uh, for more than just a dream. We got a lot of shit for. We kind of went more. I don't want to say '80s exactly, but there were synthesizers added, which was, you know, a new thing for Fits and the Tantrums. Uh, there was yeah. a little bit of guitar, but not much. Um, drum machines, like the sound, really changed on the album, and a lot of people didn't like it. But then it also ended up being one of our biggest records. You know, <laughs> right. uh, a couple of our right. biggest songs came off that album, and it's actually. More than just a dream might be. It's probably my favorite Fist in the Tantrums album. Yeah. Um, yeah, just but because, yep, yeah. I don't know. Go ahead. No, but it also stems from that thing of uh, I think at that period, like when we were when we were touring, it was you know leading up to that, you know we were really digging the limitations that are uh, that the arrangement like like our instrumentation brought to it yeah and that was really great for a couple yeah. of years and then i know as we're like riding around on the bus and playing music for each other and all this stuff and i know a lot of talk about like synths man man missing having some synths and other colors because you know we yeah you know only had so many colors and it was really great but it was also like i think we've um you know gone as far as exhausted that we've right. wanted to go with it it's you know it's not like you know you can look at a band like Kruangbin these days who have who have kept yeah. their limitations and they still keep progressing musically but it's you know what they are like acdc like this is what we do and yeah. right you know <laughs> right love right. it or hate it every acdc record hits just right you know because they yep. again right. a band that said this is what we do we're not going to try to be anything else and you know this is what we like and you know yeah take it or leave it and i think yeah that's we've been more fluid with it 
Yeah. Well, and and fluid, you know, it's it's that's an individual journey for every group, obviously. But like, you take ACDC versus like Zeppelin, who constantly brought in different sounds on every record. You know, where it was like, we did that. Why do we want to do that again? You know, and yeah, I, right. I I love that approach as well because it's like each record was different. Each record was like, oh, they're bringing all kinds of acoustic stuff, and then like alternate tunings and like. Changing it up a little bit, I think, keeps it interesting. I think that's a, that was a cool approach. Yeah, and also, yeah, we I just think that we made a conscious choice at some point that it's an interesting thing, man. Because if you're a fan, this is my theory. If you're a fan, like you, you go to certain bands for certain things. Yeah. Like you fans, it's a natural thing. Even as a musician, it's I might be the same way. Like if I want to hear, you know. I don't know. I like it. Just name any genre. Like, like I don't go listen to like James Brown because I'm in the mood for pop. You know what I mean? And like, like right. we like our, we like to put our, we like to have category. It's, I think it, there's a human urge to do that. And like, I don't want to put on like, I don't know. Let me, I'm just trying to think of some examples in real time, but, but people don't like it when their favorite band changes. Is what yeah. I'm really saying. Sorry, I'm I guess. still waking up today, but no, people don't no like worries. it. Yeah, like if you if it depends on the band, but if there's a band that you always go to like for for rock, you know, and then all of a sudden they put out like a super pop song, you might yeah. say, ah, I don't know, like, I like them when you know they're my rock band. Why are they doing? Um, and we've been lucky as fits in the tantrums to we have switched it up quite a bit on every album, and yeah. have managed to actually grow, you know, um, yeah. which. It was a risk. I mean, it was a big risk uh, starting with more than just a dream where we added synthesizers. And then, you know, we've moved in a more pop direction. And um, yeah, it just it keeps evolving. And we've we've kept it fluid because it's, people don't realize that as musicians, you do want to change. Like we, we're all musicians. We can all play different. We, we have different genres that we like. Sometimes I like playing. I mean, mostly I'm a soul guy and I like a funk guy. But like at the same time, yeah. you know, I love synths and pop and all that stuff. And you know, totally. I don't just play one kind of music and right. uh, most musicians don't, but your fans want you to play this kind of music that they first heard you play. So right. it's a weird conundrum because you don't want to alienate people. But at the same time, you were people and, you know, yeah. we evolve yeah. and we end up in different places at different times. Well, yeah, and you and can a, see, it's you know, it's like the artist has to make themselves happy above everything. There's always going to be people who like it. There's always going to be people yeah. who don't like it. But it's, and, it is uh, a risk. I mean, it's a risk when you switch totally. up your sound. Yeah. And we have taken that risk and, and for better or for worse, you know? Well, in that case, it was for the better. I mean, look at how many fans you guys gained changing it up on that, on the more than just a dream record. It's like it crazy. It just went, went mega, you know? Yeah, yeah that's true. That's so, you know, yeah. yeah. And that's something that, you know, we were enjoying, especially making that record and putting in these sounds and all this stuff, you know, and, yeah. You know, it was, it was tough at times when you first, you know, start, you put out your video on YouTube and you start seeing all the, the haters going, you know, and you, and you right. read enough of those things and you just got to turn it off and just go like, you know, the internet is not the answer to whether people like you yeah. or not, because that's just not a real world. It's not right. authentic. The comment section's right. a bad neighborhood. Yeah, it's a bad neighborhood. <laughs> a bad neighborhood. And, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it all depends yeah. on when you go out and play shows. Are people still coming to see you live? <laughs> you know? Yeah, are exactly. people? Yeah, exactly. Are people coming? And am I happy to be playing this music and happy to be taking the steps that we took? Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. that's the most important thing. Absolutely. 
How many people are on the road with you guys in the entourage? Mm. 14 right now. I think actually at this point we've got – we're up to – I think this tour we've got four semis. We've got about 75 crew. <sighs> Holy and, shit. Uh, yeah. No, we have, we have 14 people on, on tour with us right now. <laughs> okay. That's with the band. Includes yeah, the band. got you. So that's six. What are just merch, management, what else? Yeah, tour manager, assistant. Well, tour manager slash front of house. We have yeah. uh, monitors. We have our stage manager who uh, kind of takes care of all the back line and all that stuff. Um, we yeah. have, uh, we, we run some tracks. So we've got our Ableton guy, Drews. Um, and we have, uh, yes, and then we have uh assistant slash merch we actually right now um because we're training a new person we have uh, a dedicated merch guy who's coming out who's uh showing her the ropes okay. like someone who's part of the merch company um because that's a whole gotcha. we have a sushi chef and then sushi, yeah, sushi, and then sushi chef, chef. <laughs> mr rizona hey. cannot do without his sushi um i need my sushi <laughs> and and we have a photographer out as well who also helps with the social media stuff and keeping oh cool all of that Going. You know, we sound like a bunch of spoiled assholes right now. No, you don't. That's what it takes to make this thing happen, man. Yeah, like, you know, we, because, you know, we, um, most of us are on the older side and not as great at the social media as some others in the band. Yeah. But then it's also like we need, it's, it's one of those things. I don't enjoy it, but it's so important. The, you know, I don't, I don't enjoy the, negative aspects of the social media stuff in general yeah. in our culture but as yeah. a business the trick to social as, media is just don't yeah. punctuate we use all lowercase right <laughs> but that's cool you guys have the photographers also the social media person because she can create constantly be creating content and everything and yeah. like posting it up that's smart yeah that's yeah. true i mean that that's one of that's our smart. more recent additions over the last couple of years you know it's just yeah. as as you grow enough and you know it's like where you know well, oh we oh, and, and lighting we have a lighting person as well so okay. oh yeah very important yeah of course so i'm interested in that in the um all of those things obviously but um how does your social media slash photographer person um does she just like constantly create new campaigns like uh for social media so you guys just constantly have a influx of stuff going up constantly or how does how does she do it you know, um, well, right now, uh, yeah, go, you go, Joe, go, you go. No, you go. You no, go. you go. No, okay. Jesus. <laughs> Fucking go. Guys, come on. Stop fighting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's got a campaign right now um, that's pretty interesting where she uh, kind of posts and it is saying like, hey, if you uh, if you bring a your own disposable camera and you're the first person in line, yeah. first person to to do it, um, she'll take that camera from that from one guest and take it for yeah. the whole day and take all these like exclusive little shots and then give them oh. back that camera on top of the photos oh. she's already taking so that's just one new way of engaging i mean most of the stuff has been in the past just more kind of keeping everybody up to date and posting photos of the shows and that kind of right. stuff you know because we also right. you know I think there's other other people as well for other campaigns and things like that this is more like a tour based um you know social media side to it right gotcha because okay. we're off the road you know i guess i don't know what is the label to it or i guess yeah our management yeah we all yeah it's like old. yeah it all depends on what we're 
what we're doing at different times. But yeah, right. like mm. I personally don't okay. post that much anymore, so I'm not really great at uh, thinking yeah. about. Oh, I got to post this for the band too, you know. Right, well, ever right, since right. watching the Social Dilemma, I it's funny actually. Yeah. I was on the plane watching the Social <laughs> yeah. Dilemma, and as I was watching it, I deleted Instagram and everything off my phone. But then yeah. I got off the plane and uh, I realized that we had to do a social media thing for the for this for let go of for the side band, so I had to put it back on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah. so talk to me, you guys, about like being in a band and say on a song um, that you've helped write or are a publisher on. What are some tips you could give people for making the most out of that contribution contribution for yourself? You know, how can you what are what are some things that get offered by the label in terms of publishing deals? Um, and how do you navigate kind of making the most of your contribution? Well, I would say that if you have any interest in a song that uh, the label or anybody else has an inkling is going to actually hit or go somewhere, you're going to start getting publishers come after you. Sometimes uh, when you first sign a record deal, the label tries to force you to also sign a publishing deal with them. I don't personally like that. I know that it just depends on where you are in your career. I mean, sometimes sometimes you got to play ball and do it. I'm not saying never, never. But um, if you find publishers coming after you, it's because they know or they, they believe and they're pretty good at guesstimating this type of thing that – there's going to be money. <laughs> yeah. And the only reason anyone's going to offer you, I mean, this is basic, you know, everyone probably knows this, but if people are going to offer you an advance, uh, yeah. it's because they are planning on making that advance back plus plenty more. So like a standard Copeld deal is 50% of the publishing, which is 25% of your whole pie. If you yeah. don't know how that works. Half, half, if you own hundred percent of a song, half that is considered the, the writer's share, which yep. generally in, in in the old, just the general standard version of that is that the writer's share belongs to you, the writer, in perpetuity, and the publisher share is like your real estate, you know, your sort of monopoly money that you can play with and you can you can sell or you can, I guess you could say almost lease to a publisher in a publishing deal. The standard right. co-publishing deal, they'll say 50% of your publishing, which is 25% of your whole pie. And usually they'll you know, they'll tempt you with a really big advance. But what you don't realize is that it's kind of like a bank offering you a, lo a loan or like it's like a credit card company giving you a credit card, but with 25% interest. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing is, it depends on what you want to do, too. If you, if you are an artist and you just want to be an artist, you're not trying to write with a bunch of people, the, the way to maximize your, your income in a way is to if you just sign an admin deal which is yeah. you need somebody to collect your money like you don't know how sure. to collect money in like japan right. um you need someone who knows how to do that you sign with an administrator they take it's standards usually 10 percent yeah. uh, not really any advances it's just a basic meat and potatoes like we'll collect your money we'll take 10 percent right. and um if you've already got a hit song for example and th that's especially when you're getting a publisher's offering you these huge advances but again, you're going to take the advance, but then you're not going to see any more money come in until you've recouped that advance. And then when that happens and your money does come in, it's going to be minus 25%. So right. publishers, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. And a lot of times as a musician, like for example, when, when the Macy thing first happened before it hit, I was living on my friend's couch 
Yeah. And some publishers started coming after me. And I almost took a, a terrible publishing deal because there was a $10,000 advance, yeah. which thank God I didn't take that, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but here's the thing. If you're trying to be like a truly be a songwriter, producer, really get in the room with a lot of different people, it's true. Publishers will they'll, they'll come after you and they'll say, we're going to get you tons of writing sessions, tons of cuts. Um, that can happen. It depends on the publisher. It depends on the size of the publisher. It depends on how much of a priority you are to that publisher. A lot of times I think they're just trying to get that, that real estate from you. Sure. But on the other hand, if it's, if it's, you know, there are situations where it's a true relationship and they truly can help propel your career. And in that case, it can be worth entertaining the publishing deal. Yeah. If you've already got a hit song though, like it seems to me, you might as well just go for an admin deal and just sure. pocket the money. And by that point, yeah. you've probably got relationships on the side anyway that you're going to exploit and you'll probably just yeah. naturally meet people and start working with them anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. Unless you're like me and very shy and terrible at networking. <laughs> you know? I think Untrue. one thing everyone should know out there is that when, uh, like, say, if you actually, we've, we've been very lucky in Fits and the Tantrums to have a very strong sync uh, business as far as getting our songs yeah. into movie trailers, uh, commercials, yeah, things like that, which is a big revenue generating thing these days. That only is going to come on the publishing side. So... Mm -hmm. Um, that is, uh, that wouldn't, will not come on your writer's side. So, um, you, again, you got to weigh the thing. If you're trying to be a songwriter and that's it, or may, or like really wanting to do, have that be a big focus, you know, having a publisher, uh, that actually helps you do that can be advantageous. Yeah. Um, but if you've already got, if you already have your connections and you're already writing with people and you don't need more connections, then the uh, the admin deal might be the way to go because they you know just a smaller yeah. percentage and it's you know different terms right you know more flexible I think that's true you know you're right Joe actually that that's a good point is like uh, I'm sitting here talking about admin deals but it's because a I have a I have a back catalog that I don't have any reason for anybody to take that extra publishing gotcha. but also in fits in the tantrums we've got a label and Fitz has his publishers that are, you, you do need somebody pushing the song. So that's true. Um, I happen to be like, we happen to be in a band. So like our portion of it, we can, we can do admin and we still know that there yeah. is somebody out there pitching the song. So that right. is something to consider is it, but you got to also consider, are they truly going to pitch your songs? Right. Um, or yeah. are they just going to sit back and collect my first bit, really big mega publishing deal was, was, was back in the Macy days and it was with EMI mm -hmm. music publishing and they made a lot of promises, but in the, at the end of the day, they didn't, they didn't, and they didn't have to pitch anything because, uh, Macy's people were already, and also there was, there were already, there was a, a hit. So like they didn't really have to do anything yeah. except take the money. <laughs> right. But although right. they did, they, in fairness, they did put me in a lot of writing sessions and I got a few album cuts and oh, nothing, good. you know, no major hits from that. But, but they were getting me writing sessions and I was, I was working all the time. Right. So there is something so to So with Fits that. and the Tantrums, is it, what would you say is the percentage that the label's bringing in and the publishers are bringing in as far as getting and, and securing third-party licenses for TV, film, and gaming and all that? Like who's... How does that? How does that? Um, how does that workflow come through? Like, who's doing most of that? 
No, I think I think it's it might be fifty fifty. I mean, I think a lot of it is you know we've yeah. got a name now and people and a recognizable sound for these things. So, you know, sure. we've gotten to a point where people want you know one of our three songs or whatever. And definitely, they you know other songs get picked up as well. But um, yeah. so people are we get a lot of requests. To us. Yeah, a lot of requests that yeah. just come in and they can come in through the label side or they come in through, um, you know, they'll go straight to everyone's individual publishers or publishing administrators. Um, yeah. You know, there's lots of people pitching things at times as well. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what the percentage of that is of things that are actively sought versus things that have just come in as requests that, you know, right, we're just right, kind right. of more passive uh you know, we just kind of sit there and go, oh, yes, well, you know, well, thank you very much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, my question isn't yeah. so much about like percentages is just that it's kind of a shared duty when you're when you're in a band like you guys have that's already, you know, got some hit songs um, offers for syncs could come through the label or they could come through the publisher or the admins yeah. either way. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Well, thanks for all that insight. That's great. Um so talk to me about, um, let's, let's go back in time just a little bit and talk to me about some of your first big kind of opening slots when Fitz, the first record had come out and you guys, I read you guys were doing opening slots with like Hepcat and Flogging Molly and Maroon 5. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, the opening band situation and how that's changed over the years going from being an opening, opening band. What did you learn from that process um, in terms of how you treat opening bands on tours that you're headlining now? Basically you just how, treat them like shit. Right. Right. That's no. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I guess our first big, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm joking. No. Um, I will say this. Uh, a lot of times the opening bands go on to be bigger than you. Right. Um, I've had that happen like with Macy when the Black Eyed Peas used to open up for us. <laughs> right, right. And it would crush it every night. Her first appearance, one of her big things was on one of their songs, right? Yeah, that's Macy right. She, had a, she, it was, she did a feature on a song called uh, Hey DJ, which was cool. And, and also Will used to you know, be around the studio all the time. We used to work on stuff all the time. But, like, but they, would, uh, they used to open up for us. You know? And then, of course, they yeah. went on to be fucking huge. Um, yeah. And we had Walk the Moon for Fizz and the Tandems. They opened up for us. And I mean, you okay. could just tell some bands you could just see you're like this. You're not going to be opening for long. You guys are going to be right. crushing it like on the next tour. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, what was that yeah, question? <laughs> no, but there, no, I think there's also that, that thing of, you know, I've been in various situations with Fizz and the Tantrums, but me also with other bands in my earlier days where I was opening up for people. And some people are very welcoming, and some people are just in their own world. You know, not that they're yeah. And they you know, yeah they'll, yeah they'll come up and be like you know like one you know we one thing that really always struck me was we got to do a few shows or a couple shows opening for No Doubt um, in like 2012, oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. and they was and it that long ago was, yeah yeah it was <clears throat> or like 2011 or 20, yeah, 2012, and so they. Um, you know, Tony Canal, who's, who's now become a friend, who's a lovely, lovely human being, actually proved to be that on the very first. He came in and welcomed us in and walked into the dressing room and knocked and was like, hey, you know, hey, I just want to say we're really excited to have you guys here. And, you know, oh, it didn't get, nice. you know, it didn't become anything more than that. But, you know, it's that responsibility to 
make the openers feel welcome <clears throat> and that you're excited right. to have them there and feel comfortable because yeah. it's, you know, there are different situations where it's just, you know, like we've been in all sorts of things. And, and when you have, you know, as an opener as well, you just, it all comes back around and you really want to be as kind and welcoming as possible and make it, it comes back to that same thing about being in a studio session, you know, yeah. how can you make people feel comfortable to do their best work, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How can you help people feel like, Oh yeah, we got your back. And you know, there's, there are certain rules. Yeah. You may miss out on some sound check because we are having technical things and it is our show. If we're the headliners, we don't want to, right. we want to give you sound check, but there are some times where unfortunately that right. time may be cut in. But, you know, we talked to them yeah. about that, go, hey, really sorry about that. You know, we want to make sure you have your time to get comfortable. But some days it's not possible. Sometimes it's not possible, not possible. for us to get comfortable. That's the worst thing about being an opener. You're not guaranteed sound check. You very right. well may be sound checking during your first song as you're actually performing in front of an audience. Sure, sure. Which sucks. But, you know, also it, it also it's good because it, it really it's it's just more, you know, it's more trial by fire, which which actually really helps in the end because. Yeah. You know, even once your band has its shit together and you've got text and you've got people helping you out, so, you know, there's always going to be something that goes wrong on stage. And the more experience you've had just plowing through something, even though you can't hear or you, whatever is happening is happening and you're, you know, playing by Braille because you have no sound, but you know that it's coming out in the front of the house. <laughs> like, right. the, you know, uh, it's it's just better. It's just more experience for, for life because there's always going to be something going wrong. You have to always act like nothing's going wrong. Yeah. Right. Roll with and I'll also say it's it is one of the most uh, biggest opportunities for growth as a band to be an opener and to go and play like right. an, even for us at this stage, you know, a few years ago, we opened up for One Republic on a big tour. Yeah. And, you know, and they were great to us. Um, and they but it's still, you know, it's, you're going out there and you, at, in that time we maybe had 40 minutes like or you know, 35 minute set to, we were like the second of three bands, including them. So we're right, right. before them, but you're still uh -huh. like, there's a thing you have to do when you know you have to win a audience over. And it's, sure. you know, it's a fire that you have to bring. That's a little different than when you can walk into a comfortable situation and be like, everyone already loves us and they're, they're already right, rooting right. for us. You know, sure. it's, um, yeah, I think, I think it's really important for bands to really seize that opportunity. And if you're opening, no matter what stage you're at to, uh, you know, try to gain that extra audience. Cause that's what we're doing. That's you're yeah. trying to expand your audience and get more fans. Sure. And sometimes the bills may not be conducive. And so we're always looking for bills that are like, Oh, everyone can be successful and everyone can have a chance to share. Right and grow their audience right. and, and the audience can have a great night all around. But, you know, sometimes right. there's other things that come into play as far as why bills are put together or why an opener is added to a thing. You right. know, we used to have a little bit more say in the early, early days, we could handpick now people. It's, it's political. Yeah. And then there's just, then it becomes like, Oh, you get on a, a label and you know, we need to, you know, you guys are a priority, but we also have this person we're bringing up and we need to have them. Uh, come on too. So, right. but usually, usually it's, you know, with some thought because again, everyone wants everyone to be successful. But it's good. You know, that's a, that's a really good point about the audience, you know, like, yeah, it, it does force you to, to really learn how to do whatever you can do to bring an audience in, which is great because then if you have that skill and then 
you are in front of your own audience, you've just got that even more, you know what I mean? And, um, and you learn, you learn about rejection because like you realize, yeah, sometimes you're paired with a band, you're opening and you're paired with a band that just, it's just a completely different kind of music. And you're like, how do we even get on this bill in the first place? So even though you're happy to be getting in front of people, it's like a completely different genre of music or whatever. And they're just, there's some tours, you know, where you're opening for somebody and, uh, <laughs> it just sucks. And like yeah, you, yeah. but it's cool because, you know, you just learn to handle that too. Cause that's all part of it too. It's there's, as you know, everyone's always heard there's tons and tons of rejection and you got to learn yeah. to just, you know, deal with that too. Yeah. Which is tough for a bunch of sensitive musicians, which we all yeah. are. Absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, every famous icon that you've ever heard of, uh, started out being, you know, rejected by people, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's that, the famous story about Prince opening for the Rolling Stones and people literally food. Right. You know? Right. It was like, you have to, you're sensitive, but you also got to withstand stuff like that and, and have yeah. enough belief in yourself that you're offering something unique that you keep going and don't let that get you down. Exactly. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I want to talk about picking up the pieces, and uh, I read that it was produced and co-written by this guy Chris Seafried. And I wanted yep. to talk to you guys. Uh, you know, obviously he's got a lot of um, amazing credits, and I wanted to ask you why he, why you guys chose him, and what it was like working with him on that record. Well, actually, uh, he was in the picture before we were. I think I oh. believe the way it went down was that uh, Seafried and Fitz were. Uh, were already, you know, yeah, I mean, they were already working together by the time it was decided to put a live thing together. Oh, um, okay, interesting. So it's funny because even though, like, I played on the album and stuff like that, it was yeah. always uh, Fitz and, you know, like, when I came to do my parts, it was me and Fitz. Um, yeah. I don't even ever think I was in the room with Seafried, like, during that period. Oh, okay. Um, he was definitely instrumental in, like, the whole thing and the writing and the production and everything, but... I think when it yeah. came time to key, you know, do keys or instrument, uh, little individual overdubs, I think it was just, just in Fitz's living room. room at his, you know, at his house. Right, because actually, Chris, okay. I know he played yeah. some bass on some of the tracks as well. So he was, I think, oh. very instrumental in um, for with uh, Fitz and helping him to realize this vision of this new sound that he was going yeah. for that re-inspired him to want to do a band. So I think. Right. Um, I think mo uh, the majority of the songs on that record were co-written, just the two of them. And then there's a couple ones that by the time the band came in, uh, the band guys, uh, myself notwithstanding, um, yeah. were, you know, in like, a, was Tighter one that everyone wrote together? Tighter was, yeah, that was a, that was a band thing. And, uh, uh, News For You, I did a little bit of writing on that and, um, can't remember i gotta look at the track yeah and I, I know noel got um, in on i think winds of change or something like that you know yeah but it was mainly yeah. for the most part it was uh it was uh, fitz and chris doing that oh, um, yeah interesting well so the first two singles um well i just want to talk to you guys about um going on tv shows because i know the mm -hmm. band was on conan and jay leno and all the late night stuff kimmel and everything and eventually yep. jimmy fallon and for those who have never done that Walk me through the experience of going on late night TV because that's obviously a huge promotional tool for every band yes. coming up. What does that look like? What's it like the first time? Uh, how does it does it get any easier over time? It gets easier, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. The only one that's terrifying is Saturday. Night, SNL is terrifying. 
Oh, I was yeah. on SNL once a long time ago, and that's like, all right, we're live in front of the whole world right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Tapings, it's still, it, it's it's pressure. I think if you, if you've, we've had the experience of doing TV when we had been really well rehearsed and had been on tour and it was just second nature to play the song. And then we've also had the experience of like, it's a brand new song, we've rehearsed it a couple times and <laughs> right. we're just gonna go for it. And that's a little different, but um, going on TV, first of all, it's it's an ace operation every time. I mean, they, they're just, they every single day they're setting up new bands and it's just like spam. I mean, yeah. you just gotta be on it. All you have to do is just just know you're just know how to play the song and, and know what to wear. Yeah. And then yeah, like right. everything else, take, you know, you'll do a couple can't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't fuck it up. Um, right. I mean, if it's bad enough at a taping as a train wreck, then I'm, you could redo it, but it's, you know, yeah. there's still an audience there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you don't want a train wreck, but th that's something to, uh, to know is that even, you know, for all of the late night shows, SNL, um, not included. Yeah, if if something goes wrong, it's totally fine, and you can redo a thing. And we've had that happen yeah. a few times for either, you know, we've messed up, or there's just most often it's just some technical thing, and you're partway through the song, like stop, stop, stop. We're not getting the keyboard, or we're not getting the, oh uh, yeah, this microphone or yeah. whatever. So, um, generally speaking, though, it goes off without a hitch. Generally speaking, like you're this, it's crazy. Your mix is just magically perfect, and then they'll just they're very organized with TV. You just just make sure to be professional, you know. Don't yeah. throw any weird attitude, and uh, and yeah. they're they're just they're ace professionals. I mean, they're just you know everyone gets just the level. It's just magic. I mean, it's it's just crazy how fast they work. And then you do a couple camera rehearsals, you do a sound rehearsal, and then the worst thing is just then you sort of sit around for hours and hours. Right. Right. Um, some of the places have fantastic massage chairs, oh. and. Uh, but basically you just sit around and it's funny because you're you kind of relax because you know you have a few hours but there's that nervous energy in the air and you know i don't know it's it's just it's it's a thing but yeah um but yeah. but that's the thing like i remember when we first did uh when we first did hand clap i think it was on ellen right and it was funny because we hadn't really performed it live very much if not at all i can't remember but very limited and yeah. so i remember even Fitz was like still you get to a point when you've done something enough times, you sort of get your, you figure out your, everything from your, where you're, like for me as a keyboard player, like where just, where my stance is, like what angle, like just what, your muscle memory, you're just working on all your muscle memory. And same thing with the vocalist, yeah. they're they're figuring out where they're gonna go and where, what their moves are. And I remember yeah. we did a hand clap kind of early on and Fitz was like, yeah, that's crazy. I was, he was still in the moment trying to figure out his stuff for that song. Yeah. And it came off fine, but, it's much more preferable to do it after you've really just, especially if you've been on the road with it and you've just got it just down and you know sure. what you're going to do. That's, that's the ideal situation. Yeah. I realized I did a, um, I changed my whole way of playing hand clap from the very beginning when I would play it, I changed my whole hand positioning because when I'm doing TV, I'm trying to look up as much as possible and not yeah. look down. And then I got to sing often as well. And so I changed the way I play the song for forever because I, I was like, oh, if I just move every shift, everything to a different position, I can keep it all in one hand position as opposed to right. this other way. I was naturally going to do it because of the way I see chords and and, you know, scales and stuff that was going to yeah. force me to have to have a couple moves on the fretboard. Right. And so Smart. doing TV was mm -hmm. a, di a direct result for me having uh, to play the song the way I play it these days. You know? Oh, crazy. OK. Yeah. 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 
That's smart. And what about like all the cameras and stuff? How are you, do you take a, everybody takes time to kind of figure out the camera angles and like a situ, getting situated for that? Yeah, they'll do, do there's usually that? two run throughs. They'll just have you play the song a couple times. And as you're doing that, the director, whoever's in charge is kind of looking at who's doing what they might see like, oh, okay, there's a sax moment in the song. So they'll know to do mm. that. And they, so they're really rehearsing too, actually. Yeah. And they're sure. figuring out what their angles are going to be. And the main thing for you as a player is, it's always a little disconcerting having a camera right in your face. You know, you're <laughs> yeah. sorry. You have to pretend it's not there and you know, you're trying to play and, and look cool and all that stuff. But meanwhile, yeah. there's like a guy right here, like, you know, right. <laughs> and you're just like, so you have to just kind of get used to that and just, I don't know. It's right. weird. I mean, there's no way to not be conscious of it, but you just have to Man. act like you just have to act. It's a lot of acting. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, you, yeah, you get your run-throughs. It usually starts with some, you know, a couple audio run-throughs, so they get their audio stuff together, and then they do your camera run-throughs. And the whole process takes probably about forty-five minutes, hour tops, maybe half hour. And uh, yeah. but like you know, th like like Jared said, they're super professional, and there's and usually your point person is very nice, very welcoming. I've never had a bad experience with the person yeah. who was like, hey, you know, they introduce themselves, like I'm the guy, you know, and. Like, you know, for yeah. our drummer, John, he's the one that has to start everything. So there's someone off in the, in the side and they've talked and they have to rehearse. So like, all right, three, two, the count in. Yeah. And, and right. when, you know, we have to also work out when to do that because we have a count in on our thing built in, usually, you know, a bar or two bars and, you sure. know, when that's when it's going to hit. So, yeah, he's got to predict that as well, you know, so. Right. But, you know, he's very good at that. So that's yeah, because you guys are syncing up some kind of tracks to go along with you as well to fill things out. Yeah, there's some playback. So it's all on Simpty and it's all, you know, it's all synced yeah. up. So, yeah, we're, Amazing. you know, there's a click and all that stuff. Right, right. Um, yeah. I'd love to talk about just because it's interesting when you're on one label, like you're the you guys were signed to Danger Bird at the beginning, um, an indie label, mm -hmm. and then got signed to Electra, And I'm just wondering how that transition worked for you guys. And um, what w was the deal, just a one album deal? Or did you have a multiple album deal that got bought out by Electra? How did that work? How did the transition yeah, I happen? I think it was more like Electra buying us out, right, Joe? I mean, like, I know that there was, it, there was a, a little bit of initial drama, I, I think, you know, uh, mm. Danger Bird. It was, it's kind well, of complicated. I don't know how much well, here, you want to do, but they didn't initially want to yeah. let us go. Well, here's yeah, here's uh, you know, here's the one thing that's very important is on Danger Bird, Fitz was the only one signed to Danger Bird, and we were signed to Fitz, and uh, so and we did right. get a you know small portion of things, but then when we went to Electra, it was it was a a daunting process because they had approached us, um, and really wanted to to uh, we had this one uh, one guy in particular who was who really was like really wanted to sign the band. And yeah. it was uh, it was just it took longer than we wanted, and it was a little um, harrowing at times because we actually made the record. We had already made the record, and uh, so we, they were buying a record, and they were also buying yeah. our. You know, we were already a solvent touring entity where we didn't have to take any money from the label for our domestic touring. So right. um, when we were able to finally do the deal with Electra, we didn't have to. Um, give away as much of the touring and things like that. But uh, it took mm -hmm. a while and it was, it was touch and go where we were like, oh my God, are we, gonna, um, are we gonna have a deal at all? We have this record and we're all really proud of it. Mm -hmm. And luckily it all, it all got worked out in the wash. But um, I know you had, a, you had another question there. I don't know if I answered everything fully. 
Oh yeah, no, I was just wondering, like the t you know, just for someone who's on an indie label that somehow you know the record you know kind of starts garnering attention, and if you get an offer from a bigger, bigger label that's going to kind of take the group you know further places has more reach and all that right just how that transition happens from from two people who were involved in that transition well you know one one sort of side note about that that was interesting was that we by the time we got to atlantic we had already done our more than just a dream album the one that where we switched it up and changed it yeah. but the funny thing about it and you know we did it because we wanted to it wasn't because anyone told us to we were still on danger bird uh, or at least still in the transition process as we were making that album. But um, it was funny because a lot of people thought, oh, you guys went to a bigger record label and they made you do like this more commercial album. But interestingly oh, enough, yeah. that's not really what happened. That was a complete artistic choice on our part that that album right. would have been that, whether it was it had come out on Danger Bird or Atlantic. Right. Um, yeah, the only yeah, thing they had on that was they uh, was just on the single, uh, the first single out of my league, you know, was like, yeah. Oh, okay, this song is good. What you know? So, Fitz and our producer for that record, Tony Hoffer, had to go back in with the input of the president of the label, going like, who's a very musical guy, um, yeah. and Craig Kalman, and who uh, he was our old uh, president of the label at the time, um, and mm -hmm. he, um, you know, definitely had notes and like, hey, you know, we gotta spice this up. We need some interstitial things, or we need a more iconic intro. And we need a few more transitional moments that are going to really impact and get, you know, he was able to like take what we were doing and had ideas of just the sonic signifiers that were going to bring it to the next level for the neck, the radio yeah. format that we were going to, which, cause we were all like AAA, which was more like KCRW and, um, you know, more, um, indie radio stations. And this next one was already starting to go to the alternative radio market. And that is, Right. You know, it's different sounds for that. And so sure. that was where the input from the label really came in was just how do you take what you do and tart it up a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah it, was, it like, was mostly oh, transitions shit. going into choruses. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but then the intro too, like with the more than just a dream, like how are you going to like get mm -hmm. that your thing that you're going to sing over and over again? You know, let's get right. that in the beginning as well. So it, it catches people's ears. We were very lucky in right. that instance to have a very musical head of the label who was able to do that and didn't change yeah. the song at all. You know, it just kind of added a few little things, but it, there was that. And the other important thing to know is then at that point, we also, all of us all signed to Atlantic and then Electra. I think that was Electra. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. And so- That's true. Know. That was a pivotal little point for the band because we signed to the label and also our whole band agreement. We really, I think that's the point when we really hashed out a, a deeper band agreement, if I'm not mistaken. It's when it evened out and really became, okay, it's not just Fitz's thing and we're signed to Fitz. It's really we're an actual entity and we're all members and we're all yeah. signed to the label and all gotcha. that stuff. Yeah. So when Craig yeah. was giving you these tips on the single, was it all stuff that you guys were doing? It was all just mixing ideas or you guys had to go in and retract stuff or how did it or just add to the mix? Yeah, Fitz just went back in with Tony, the producer, and basically they just, it was mostly, it was transitions going to courses, so they, they, were, they just made some little synth swells and things okay. like that. It was, it was mostly that. Um, yeah. Because initially when, when the song was recorded, there was a deliberate decision to, to keep things sort of flat, and not to not have a chorus mm -hmm. and everything, just to definitely do that, but, but not to have, not to do swells and things like that. And basically the labels acknowledged. And I think they were right. I think the song actually does yeah. sound better with, with the extra dynamics. But it was just like right. a day of going in and, and just doing extra dynamics in the, you know, but mostly just like synth swells gotcha. and things like that. 
So was the album version different than the single version? No. No, no they were just early versions of the song. But no, what finally got released gotcha. is what got released. Gotcha. Man, so, well, talk to me about this, because that was kind of like your guys' first big, Out of My League was the first big hit, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, well, Money was Grabber like the, was the first one, but it was a, on like right. a smaller level with uh, on, on sure. the AAA. So, yeah, this was the first one that really took it to the next level, where we're starting to play right, yeah. right, right. like Coachella and things like that. Right, right. So talk to me about when you have a hit single like that, how does the label management, the band itself, how does it create this snowball effect to get a single to really get traction? I mean, it's a lot of, wow. a lot of moving pieces. It's a lot of behind the scenes magic. Right, right, right. A lot um, of behind the scenes magic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, it's like as a musician, our job is to show up and play and go do the shows and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, there's, I mean, I think a big part of these days in doing things is trying to marry a song with some kind of commercial campaign, if you can, because you want to get the song mm. in the zeitgeist, because there's so much right. stuff yeah. out there these days. And to, you need every edge yeah. you can to be able to get this song heard and not just heard on radio. It could be heard on radio, but if, if it's getting played on a car commercial, if you're lucky enough to get something like that, then it becomes that song right. that people are like, oh, I don't have no idea who the band is, but I know that song. And people start yeah. whistling it and or doing whatever the thing is, you know, and that's a, that's a huge thing. And trying to marry that moment of, can we get a good extra promotional opportunity? Or like for us doing Ellen, like was, yeah, was yeah. really huge. Getting it at the right moment. Yeah. I think that was, I think the first thing we did with Ellen was the Walker actually, and she used okay. the Walker, which is the second single on on More Than Just a Dream, as she was yeah. hosting the Oscars that year, and so she mm -hmm. oh. used it as she had this huge promo, um, like a minute long dancers. promo thing, to, dancers, this whole thing to the Walker of her like walking through us oh, through wow. the yeah, back yeah. lot and having all the, and all these people come. It was this really cool thing. And then she had us on. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, the daytime TV matters much more than the nighttime TV as far oh, as okay. actually changing any, uh, getting any actual, like if you do good morning America, you do an Ellen, things like that, you're going to see a bump mm. in numbers. You may not see as much from, the late night stuff because remember you're going on I think that's you're right, going to find yeah. the early thing you're going on the show starts 11 25 you're going on at 12 15 right right or later if you're on one of the later ones so it's just you have much less viewership but it's all these things that you want to try to get to line up at the right time and you could have something right. like oh the the commercial thing or this ellen opportunity happened before things were happening at radio or or just after yeah. when things started to dip down in your plays yeah and th those are the hard things and that's where like having you know that's where the management and the label and all that stuff come into play to try to make those moments happen in a synchronous way but some things are just out of your control yeah just, they just work their magic create more and more contact to keep things going extend the yeah and yeah. hey listen also don't don't also like yeah that's that's the major stuff right there and then also on another level, uh, just being a politician and just shaking hands and like, you know, we go to the radio stations all the time to do, when we have a new single, we'll go to make our rounds and do a little acoustic shows at the stations. And, you know, yeah. it's uh, being nice to the radio programmers, shaking hands, being friendly, yeah. being cool. Um, you know, just yeah. basic stuff like that too, that 
I never really used to consider, but um, yeah, just that's the understatement of the year. Jeremy is like how important just being nice and cool to people is. You know, it's like when we first when the band first started out, our our outfit was we used to wear suits and ties, and uh, it was funny because I used to joke around because you know anywhere we went, like we're we're also we're a super punctual band. You know, everyone just comes in with a professional attitude, and uh, I used to joke around because like we you know we'd even show up in suits. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's true, like you, just basic things like people are trying to help you, and, but, you know, you got to be cool and you, yeah, yeah. you got to be nice, you got to be friendly. All that, those basic things are super important. Be on time. Yeah, and also say yes. You have to say yes to almost everything and work your butt off because yep. you don't know what, right. what opportunity is going to be the one that takes it over the finish line. Or what thing, right. you know, what person you're going to meet or what thing is going to do it, you know? Yeah, we used to say, I remember we used to, you know, be like, hey, this guy's got a podcast in his garage in Long Beach. Can you guys go down there and do like a little mini performance? And so maybe a couple of us or a few, whatever, whoever could make it would go down there. And, you know, it, it was like every little thing. Yeah, you would just say yes, say yes, say yes. And just anything that came your way. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say one of the first things that really took us over the edge uh, or that brought us to a more national level um, that enabled us to then get radio to go behind money grabber and stuff like that was the live from Daryl's house, Daryl Hall from Hall and oh, Oates right, 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 right. in his early yep. days was one of the pioneers of having like his own internet show where he had his band and he'd invite other artists to come on and you'd kind of blend with his band. So for us, it was, uh, Fitz and Noel and James went, and then the rest of the band right. was Daryl's band and they, you play some of their songs and they play some of your songs and they do their own versions of it. And, right. you know, who knew that? I mean, I think at the time he had like 200,000 subscribers, but that was yeah. the first thing that took us to the next level. And, you know, obviously, right. if so, you know, it's like, oh, of course you want to go and hang out with Daryl Hall and his band. You know, he's he's an icon. And, you know, but, sure. you know, to realize what a cool experience it actually turned out to be and then how influential it became and how much it increased. You know, we still get people coming up going like, oh, I, I discovered you at Live yeah. from Daryl's house, you know, it's like. To this day, every and, after every show, like, oh, live from Daryl's house. Yeah. Yeah, man. He wrote some songs that are just forever going to be in the zeitgeist. Jeez, Hall and Oates, man. I grew up on those records, too. They're just... yeah. yeah, he can definitely afford to pay his cell phone bill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's got a beautiful head of hair, too. Yep. Man. All natural. It's, it's true. It's true. <laughs> well, let's take a minute just because he couldn't be here today, but just to talk about in our extended circle of musicians, you know, there's just some amazingly talented people, including you two. And uh, but then there's dudes like James King, who just like are freaks of nature, talented. And uh, yeah. I just love to talk about what James King brings to fits in the tantrums and uh, what we love about him because he can't be here today. Well, I mean, first oh, of all, like, yeah, I mean, musicality, obviously, like, you go on and on about his talent with that. It's it's incredible. But also, one thing that I really appreciate about James is, like, that dude is such a good performer. Like, it's yeah. so easy to be – like, I'm a keyboard player. I, I, I try to perform. You know, I, I, I don't sit. I stand. I try to at least kind of get the groove on. But, like, James is, is truly, like – on every level just just brings it on stage every night like he besides the playing which is obviously key um yeah. just everything like even just little just dance moves and just so comfortable with himself on stage i mean he pretty much grew up on yeah. stage from what i understand 
And yeah. like, you know, from like being, a, I think from his young teenagers, I believe. Yeah. And like, uh, just so comfortable on stage. Like that's right. a dude who just gets out there and just fully is one with the audience and just, just he's a natural. naturally an incredible performer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a reason it's, he's up there in the front with Fitz <laughs> and Noel, who are also right. amazing performers, you know, and he sure. holds his own as, you know, and brings so much joy and energy. I mean, you know, even my first days seeing him over at like the temple bar and he's part of a horn yeah. section with his big Barry. He always yeah. had mm -hmm. a magnetism uh, on a personality level, let alone his musicality. Yeah. I mean, his ear is, his, his ear is insane. You know, he really, yes, he really insane. knows his stuff and, uh, you know, definitely on all that, on that tip is able to help so much when you know, it's like, all right, we got to figure out the right harmony for this. We're going to rework a song and like, you know, that's he, your man. His, his, it's so instrumental in, in that type of stuff as well. And really, uh, finding the right way, you yeah. know, like I'm, one of my first things, like when I was coming in and I didn't start singing and then I started singing and I'm singing one thing all up, you know, and I've, I've got my way that I think it should go. And he's like, Oh no, well the chords going like this and you need to hang on this note for two extra, you know, two beats longer. And I was like, right. Oh, right. I wouldn't have done that. I would, I'm just like following along with everyone else's notes you know sure so little things like that that go a long way and the oh, humor man. makes a lot of people laugh very often so it's like uh dude so key on the road dude he's comfortable playing jazz with jeff goldblum he could play the benny hill theme uh with you guys i saw him play i was rehearsing with joey altruda one time and james was playing with willie mcneil who used to play with joey at this burlesque club right down the street and mm -hmm. uh I went to go, Joey and I went to go watch him and he was, I haven't laughed that hard in so long. He was just playing behind the girl dancing, playing saxophone, just improvising, but out on the, out on the front of the stage with her getting into it. And I was just laughing my ass off for an so hour good. straight. It was so great. Yeah. James King. We love James you, James King. King. James King. <laughs> Well, you guys, I don't want to keep you forever, but one thing that's unique to this band that I haven't gotten to ask everybody is you guys, and we kind of touched on it in the beginning, is most of this band has kids. And I wanted to just talk about the dynamic of being out on the road and juggling family life at the same time and what's that like and how you deal with it and, uh, and how that goes, being a touring musician on the road. Because... That's something so many of us run into. Yeah, you know, up until I was a dad, I would I never understood when I had friends that had kids. They were like, I, I just don't want to go out. This, you know, it's hard to go out. I got the kid. I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I yeah. really couldn't relate. Honestly, I was like, you're crazy. This is touring. It's the best thing in the world. Why, why are you doing this? Um, <laughs> right. And now I'm a dad. Uh, my daughter's going to be six in July. Um, and... Uh, it's really hard leaving. It's really, really hard leaving. It's not as hard leaving your wife because she's a, a grown up and she's not going to have a brand new vocabulary and look completely different when you get back in a few weeks. But yeah. your kid is, you know what I mean? So, right. um, it's, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it just, it, and it's also, especially now we're post pandemic. I mean, we've all been in this bubble, so it's especially hard now, but yeah, yeah leaving, you know, leaving the fam is, is tough. And I never yeah. thought I'd be that guy, but now I'm fully that guy. And how are you dealing with it? Are you, you guys, you talk on Zoom every day or how do you guys? You know, thank you God we live in a time that we have, yeah, FaceTime and all that stuff. Because um, right. I remember touring back in the day when you had to have a little calling card and find a phone booth. 
Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, uh, that's, that's when sucks. I did the majority of touring was with those colleagues. Yeah, I know. I mean, if it's people don't even know how good they have it now. Like, but just that you can go and just the fact that you have a map in your hand. I mean, going to right. Europe and be like, seriously, where the fuck do I go? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yes, and it's, so I mean, FaceTime helps a lot. Um, and uh, it's hard. There's no way around it. It's hard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is the hardest thing about this. You know how it is because it's like you get that hour and a half when you're actually on stage and you're doing it, but the Focused. rest of the time, you know, you're you got plenty of time to to pine for your for your fam. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's also like the coming back, you know, coming in and out of their lives. You know, it's it takes yeah. Yeah. a you know it takes a very special uh, woman to be able to stand by someone who's doing this. Because it's a, it's a huge sacrifice on everybody on a certain level, you know, and yes, you're going out and yeah. you are, you know, hopefully making money for the family and doing that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it puts a lot of pressure on, on whoever's left behind. And like you are going and seeing a new place every day and, you know, you know, as much as you have all that time in between, there can be distractions of just newness of new places and things like that. Sure. Whereas... Yeah. The only thing that's changed for your family at home is that you're not there and that they have to right. double down on the parenting and things like that. And yeah. And, you know, so, and, but then coming back home, this is something that people I don't know talk about so much is finding the right way to integrate. It's taken my family years to figure out how do I come back home? How do I, how yeah. am I, you know, cause I'll come in and I'll think I'm trying to help out so much, but they've already got yeah. their system down. Uh, you know, right. took them a few days and there's going to be, you know, there's, there's still, even to this day, it's going to be a two to three day transition window where I come back and we get used yeah, to each other and, and get used to like, you know, you know, what is the new rule, especially with young children? My daughter's nine. Um, yeah. right. especially with young children, you're like, okay, what, where are you with, um, what, what's the, what's the latest thing that's going on with, with the kid? Um, yeah. you know, what's, what's the new rule? I mean, ha have we, have we eased up on the sweets at a certain point or are we not going to do <laughs> yeah. that? Are they, are they helping out with the chores or are they not, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, trying to get in sync as much as yeah. possible, but I've just come in as a bull in the China shop trying to overhelp and it doesn't always right. work that way. And, you know, so no. you, you, you got to have a lot of patience and it's like, you know, it's one of the things I learned about just being married is like, who do you want to work through? all the stuff with who can who's your partner to work through stuff because everyone gets along in the good times you know who yeah do you want to work through the problems and issues of daily life with and, oh easy uh, your therapist yeah well and <laughs> having having that all that kind of stuff you know um sorry yeah yeah it's it's the hardest thing about this and like you said with the pandemic you know and having the bubble it's you know it's we're learning firsthand in real time right now how to redo yeah. this again you know and it's uh luckily right. these you know initial runs are a little shorter but uh yeah it's a challenge right. it's the biggest challenge yeah if the pandemic taught us nothing else is that all you need is two pairs of sweats and one t-shirt and two pairs of underwear <laughs> <laughs> and that's it right not even shoes <laughs> Oh, man. Well, as I've told you guys a million times before, I'm just so happy that all this uh, success has come to such nice people. And I love all you. Love the whole band. Love you, too. Thanks, and, man. We uh, love you. Uh, right I wish James you. could be here today, but sending him out a bunch of love. And, um, yeah. man, thanks so much for being on the podcast, you guys. 
Uh, thanks oh, for having good. us. Very, very My happy pleasure. to be here and very happy to be, get to talk with you, brother. Thank you, yes. Joe. Thank you, Jeremy. Love you guys. And, we love uh, you. Thanks for being on The Conduits. Yeah. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew Studio and DanYubeProductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from other mothers, Scott Power, Bill Coulter, and Alex Desert. And last but not least, go check out Soul Pitman, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Till next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off.